How's everybody doing? Hoping you're having a fantastic day. Um, earlier this week, unfortunately, a bunch of stuff happened. I was, well, I still am sick. Um, my daughter's baptism was on Saturday. was having terrible car trouble. So uh, I decided, uh, rather than making you guys wait another week um, to do the chapters two and three, that I would just record um, my explanation of chapters two and three of On the Principles of Nature. And next week, or at least this Thursday, we'll move on to four through six since uh, they're shorter chapters. So we're going to finish up on the principles of nature. You will have read your, um, for some of you, you will have read your first work of St. Thomas Aquinas from cover to cover. And then next week, we're going to be moving on to some things that you'll probably find more interesting because we won't touch anything else philosophically until all the way at the end when we go back to read uh, On Being in Essence, which is a bit of a complicated work, which will build action on some of the principles that we get in On the Principles of Nature. And that'll put a little bit of a bow on the top of our reading list. So uh, before we begin, um, as I say, uh, on, a, on a weekly basis, this is uh, something which provide for completely free for everybody involved. So uh, this project is contingent on donor support. Uh, I would actually like to make this my main project and kind of make other YouTube stuff um, secondary. But yeah, I think this is uh, a really good project for those who are seeking to be formed within the tradition of scholasticism. So um, I do have my Patreon below. Uh, I also, um, if you have PayPal, um, I, if you're in the Discord server, my PayPal is there, militantthomas.gmail.com, or uh, my Cash App is also there. But uh, after that is all through, let us continue. Well, I guess let us begin. So last week, we had a brief discussion of some fundamental principles of metaphysics. We discussed act and potency. Uh, we discussed uh, simple being, which is essence, something essential, and accidental being, which is, um, which is relative existence, if you want to put it like that. And then we discussed the relationship between all of those. Uh, we discussed substance and accident. We discussed uh, matter out of which and matter in which. We discussed uh, form. And then we discussed um, these relationships dynamically considered. So we discussed generation. We discussed corruption. But at the end, uh, when discussing generation and corruption, we discussed uh, those things which are requisite for generation and corruption. So these are called the principles of nature. This is what this whole uh, work by St. Thomas is about. <coughs> <coughs> Sorry, I am sick, so I hope I don't destroy your eardrums with my coughing fits. So with these three principles of nature, we have, as we spoke about, matter and form, but we also add a third, which is privation. And privation is the really the non-determinacy of a certain matter towards a certain form, which uh, sounds a bit uh, abstract, but as we get in the text, we'll be able to explain some of the 
nature of this because St. Thomas, uh, during this chapter, in chapter two, he's going to spend quite a deal of time discussing the nature of privation. Uh, the second through the sixth paragraphs, actually, is just nature of privation. And then he finishes up the second paragraph discussing the nature of prime matter. And then we're going to get uh, kind of a holistic view um, of the principles of nature uh, throughout this chapter. And then in chapter three, which we're also discussing today, this is actually going to be a relatively easy chapter. Um, not easy uh, due to the details, but easy because um, most of the paragraphs in chapter three uh, we don't really need to discuss. You don't really need to know. Thomas uh, goes on a bit of a, a tangent about the name of elements or the name of cause, the name of principle, um, the extrinsic versus extrinsic. Uh, he, he goes he goes into a bit of a tangent that you don't really actually need to know much about. So I'm going to be uh, going through chapter three a little bit quicker and not uh, explaining uh, because I don't think it's as uh, useful for you guys. So uh, let us begin. Um, I have it pulled up. So uh, in the first paragraph, uh, St. Thomas is going to introduce the problem that he's going to be discussing uh, throughout this entire chapter. Um, he is going to distinguish uh, first between the active and the receptive aspects of generation. So the af active aspect of generation or the active principle of generation is going to be form. Uh, that's uh, that which the act terminates in. And the receptive aspect is going to be uh, matter and privation. And he's going to uh, give us a very important detail about the relationship between matter and privation. He's going to tell us that they only differ in concept or in uh, the, the important word that is going to be very important throughout all of St. Thomas's works. It's going to differ in ratio or in conception or in definition, but it's going to be the same in ray. So in the thing, an analogy to this would be how um, we are um, my my human essence is singular. Yet there are two concepts present in there, the concept of animality and the concept of rationality. They're not two different things we can uh, pull apart, but um, they're also not merely, um, are, the distinction between the two aren't merely arbitrary, uh, like we would get uh, in a so-called nominal distinction. So to reading the paragraph, Therefore, there are three principles of nature, matter, form, and privation. And he's saying, therefore, from this last uh, paragraph, which if you don't remember that, you should just review that. One of these forms is that by reason of which generation takes place. So um, this is pretty simple. Form is just that by reason of which generation takes place. So we can uh, think of the generation of a new person. Uh, it, actually, we can think of the generation of a statue uh, because that's the example he's going to use. The generation of statue <coughs> from an uh, undetermined uh, hunk of bronze, the generation of that statue, the form or the shape of the statue or statueness is that by reason of which the generation or the forming of the statue takes place. Because it's the forming of the statue. 
or we can think of like biological generation. The, um, the conception of a human is the conception of a human. And it's from the matter. So I hope that uh, makes sense. The of versus the from or the by which, as St. Thomas says. The other two are found on the part of that from which there is generation. Hence, matter and privation are the same in subject, uh, but differ in definition. So as I said uh, in kind of introducing this paragraph, they're going to be identical in reality. So you can't separate a, uh, a thing of matter and a thing of privation. No, no, no. They're, they're related. Um, they, they only differ uh, in the consideration of our intellect. Because bronze in what is shapeless. So what is shapeless is going to be privation. Because bronze, which is the matter, and what is shapeless, which is privation, are the same before the advent of the form. Because uh, if you think about it, try to, uh, in your shapeless bronze, separate or, um, or distinguish in reality shapelessness and bronze. You, you just can't do it. They're identical in reality. They only differ in the consideration of our intellect. But for one reason, it is called bronze, and another reason it is called shapeless. It's not the same uh, concept, a different concept. They're only identical in reality. Wherefore, privation is not said to be a principle essentially, but rather a principle accidentally, because it is coincident with matter. So this is saying is that matter is actually the only thing that really is an essential principle. Uh, privation acts as some sort of uh, thing that follows accidentally uh, from matter. That is that the matter doesn't have the form which is to come. That's all privation means, is that the matter doesn't have the form which is to come. So the privation of the bronze is its shapelessness. It doesn't have that certain form. It has a different form. So it's really something which is coincident with matter, not a, uh, a separate principle of its own. For example, we do not say that it is accidental that the doctor builds because he does uh, do this insofar as he is doctor, but insofar as he is builder, which is coincident with being a doctor in the same subject. So doctor and builder, they differ in uh, conception, but the man who is a doctor who builds um, him uh, as doctor builder are really identical uh, because it's the same person who is doctor and builder. You don't separate two separate persons. So I guess that's, that's a, that's an even better um, analogy that St. Thomas gives for the idea of something being identical in subject, but differing in ratio. So uh, after this brief introductory uh, paragraph, St. Thomas delves into th uh, from the second paragraph to the sixth paragraph of the nature of privation. He goes really deep into what exactly we mean uh, by privation. So in this uh, second paragraph, He's going to tell us that privation is a proper accident. I'm going to say it's a proper accident. What is a proper accident or uh, some call it a property? It comes from uh, the Isagage of Porphyry or the introduction to Aristotle's categories of Porphyry. And all it means is it's an accident that flows from the essence rather than being something which is uh, arbitrary, uh, so to speak. So, for example, my risibility 
that is my ability to laugh, uh, flows from my rational animality. The fact that I'm rational and the fact that I am animal from these flows my ability to laugh. Whereas something like um, the the accident of uh, me liking my coffee black, I like my coffee black, but that doesn't flow from my essential constituency, my nature as rational animal. That is something which is more or less arbitrary. So when it comes to uh, um, privation, privation is an accident in the sense of a property. So um, he begins, but there are two kinds of accident, the necessary, which is not separated from the thing, for example, risible and man. So by not separated, think flows from. And the non-necessary, which can be separated. So rather than being flow from, it's more arbitrary. For example, white from man. Thus, although privation is an accidental principle, still it does not follow that it is not necessary for generation because matter is never entirely without privation. So privation always flows from matter. Why, why is this the case? Why is this the case? He continues. For insofar as it is under one form, it has privation of another. And conversely, just as there is the privation of fire and air, and the privation of air and fire. So the reason why matter is never entirely without privation is because in order for matter to exist, it has to have form. Now, in order for it to be a certain form, it is not a different form. So uh, this wood in the shape of a toothpick is in privation to it being in the shape of a basket. If it's the one, it's not the other. It can't be both. Something can't be both a toothpick and a basket. Those are contrary forms. And contrary forms do not exist in the same subject. So in order for, uh, for so when there is matter that has forms, so matter that exists, it is going to have privation necessarily when it comes to other forms. Now, continuing to the third paragraph. So in the third paragraph, he's going to distinguish privation from negation because often uh, we can get confused about the differences between privation and negation. They can be just confusing for us. So um, also we should note that although generation is from non-existence, we do not say that negation is the principle, but the privation is the principle because negation does not determine a subject. So it's simple. Negation has a sort of infinite potency to it. Because I can say not seeing about a cup, about a train, about a book, about a, um, a hat, about a floor, about a house, about curtains. I can say uh, you, you, what you have with negation, non-seeing, is it can uh, take upon itself an infinity, well, an infinity of subjects, and therefore there is no no uh, determination at all. So it's not the uh, principle of generation. Rather, a uh, privation is like blindness. Blindness is a privation, something that ought to have a certain form, but that doesn't, or something that's at least capable of a certain form and doesn't have it. That's what privation means. That's why we say, for example, a lot of people. 
erroneously say that evil is a negation. No, evil is not a negation. Evil is a privation. Evil uh, is something which it uh, is a certain lack uh, where it is capable or um, at least fitting for it to have it or ought to have it uh, in, a, in a way. Non-seeing can be said even of non-beings. For example, we say that the um, chimeria, I've never been able to pronounce it, chimeria, does not see. And we say the same of beings which are not apt to have sight, such as stones. But privation is said only of a determined subject, namely that in which the habit is apt to come to be. For example, blindness is said only of things which are apt to see. So that's pretty plain. So now in the fourth paragraph, so in the fourth paragraph, we give another note that distinguishes privation um, from the other principles and that makes it unique. So privation only regards becoming, not being. And the translation actually, well, actually, this is the fourth and the fifth paragraphs, but the translation, um, it's non-traditional in its phrasing, so I will, uh, I will clarify. So also, because generation does not come to be from non-being, simply speaking, but uh, from the non-being, which is in some subject, and not in just any subject, but in a determined subject, because fire does not come to be from just any fire, but from non-fire, as it is apt to receive the form of fire. So that is uh, something which has the privation of fire, not just merely something which has the negation of it. Therefore, we say that privation is the principle and not negation. Privation differs from the other principles, because the others are principles both in existence and in becoming or in uh, in being and in becoming being and becoming being and becoming this is going to uh, it's going to become very important being and becoming in uh, in order for a statue to come to be or in order for a statue to become there must be bronze further there must be the shape of the statue so uh, when it comes to uh, privation privation only, uh, exists in becoming, not in being. Uh, when there, when the form is received, the privation goes away. So, um, so when it comes to uh, the non-fire that is able to properly receive the form of fire, it is something which has the privation of that form, not merely the negation. So when the become of fire happens, the privation sort of melts away. Because privation is the privation of a certain form, which is an apt to receive. So once it receives that form, the aptness to receive that form, that is privation, goes away. So I hope that makes uh, makes sense. And he continues uh, in this next paragraph. Again, when the statue already exists, it is necessary that these two exist. But privation is a principle in becoming and not in being says an existing because until the the statue becomes it must not be a statue for if it were it would not come to be or it would not become because whatever becomes is not except in successive things for example in time and motion but from the fact that the statue already exists or already bees the privation of a statue is not there because affirmation and negation are not found together, and neither are privation and habit. Likewise, privation is an accidental principle, as would explain the above, but the other two are essential principles. 
So affirmation and negation are not found together. Form is the affirmation um, or the habit, uh, as he puts here. And privation is the negation or the, the, the privation is put here. So the two cannot exist together. Once the become happens, the one passes away. But I think I have belabored the point enough. So now in um, paragraph six, we distinguish between two types of matter. There's some matter that includes privation uh, in its idea. It, uh, privation necessarily flows from it. Others that do not. <coughs> At least uh, in relation to um, certain forms. Because unless something is purely actual, um, it's it's going to have the ability to take on uh, itself or be in privation to a different form. And I will explain this uh, when it comes to bread with a fun example. Therefore, from what was said, it is plain that matter differs from form and privation by definition. Easy peasy. Matter is that in which the form and privation are understood. Easy peasy. Just as in bronze, the shape and the shapeless is understood. Still, matter sometimes designates privation, sometimes does, does not designate privation. So matter sometimes designates privation, or at least designates a certain privation would be better. For example, when bronze becomes the matter of the statue, it does not imply privation. Because when I speak of bronze in this way, I do not mean what is undisposed or shapeless. Flour, on the other hand, since it is the matter with respect to bread, implies in itself the privation of the form of bread. Because when I say flour, the lack of disposition or the inordination opposed to form of bread is signified. So uh, when we when we signify something like uh, flour, flour as a subject or as a matter is going to uh, ordinarily signify something which is the matter of bread. It's going to have that privation to it, the privation of the form of bread. Now, uh, this, I, I guess we can kind of distinguish between primary and secondary because flour primarily does this. Now, bread, bread we usually don't think of in this way. But secondarily, we can think of bread uh, as having certain privations because unless something is purely actual, it necessarily has certain privations to other forms. So bread, for example, it has the privation of being French toast or uh, being a crouton, or uh, being uh, in a sandwich. Or, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure I could think of a bunch of them, but that's that's about it. So uh, while bread primarily doesn't have this designation, it secondarily has uh, this designation. Because again, unless something is purely actual, it is going to have some sort of privation to it. Also, because in generation, the matter of the subject remains, but the privation does not, nor does the composite of matter and privation. Therefore, that matter which does not imply privation is permanent, but that which implies privation is transient. So we, uh, this difference between uh, primary and secondary, we can look at it, the difference between um, permanence and transience. So uh, bread is permanent um, because its primate privations are secondary, where flour is transient since its privation is primary. It's privation primarily towards being bred. So now continuing in the seventh paragraph. So um, he 
changes uh, sort of speed in these last three paragraphs or last four paragraphs. <coughs> Paragraph seven through ten. He begins a discussion of the nature of prime matter. So really, uh, I guess we can discuss this whole chapter as sort of a of a discussion of matter and its concomitants, uh, because prime matter uh, has this has the same uh, sort of relation to has a relation that is um, to matter. So uh, in the first paragraph, he's discussing the distinction between matter and prime matter. So he says we should notice, too, that some matter has a composition of form, bronze, for example. So some matter has a form. Bronze has a form. Uh, bread has a form. Uh, my body has a form. For although it is the matter with respect to the statue, the bronze itself is composed of matter and form. Therefore, bronze is not called prime matter, even though it has matter. So um, matter, simply speaking, or just just matter, is really only matter relatively. It's matter in relation to a certain form. It's not matter absolutely. Only prime matter is matter absolutely. The bronze has a certain form. Therefore, it still has some sort of relation to form, where prime matter has no relation to form. It really is uh, pure potency. And we're going to get into, uh, in the last paragraph, the fact that it doesn't exist because it's pure potency. However, that matter, which is understood without any form in privation, but rather is subject to form in privation, is called prime matter by reason of the fact that there is no other matter before it. So prime matter, a pure uh, sort of lack of form. This is also called hyal. Also, because all knowledge in every definition comes by way of the form, prime matter cannot be defined or known in itself, but only through its composite. So we cannot know prime matter. We cannot properly define prime matter because we know things through their forms. You know uh, the tree through the form of tree and in, uh, in a secondary way are able to define its matter the same uh, way with prime matter. Consequently, it might be said that the prime matter that 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 is prime matter which is related to all forms and privations as bronze is to the statue and the shapeless and this is called first simply speaking a thing can also be prime matter with respect to some genus as water with respect to aqueous solution this however is not first simply speaking because it is composed of matter and form hence it has a prior matter so he's showing that things can be prime matter in certain genera or prime matter absolutely speaking which is what we call prime matter and then uh, in the next paragraph, he goes on to talk about matter as the sole subject of generation and corruption. Note also that prime matter, likewise form, is neither generated nor corrupted, because every generation goes from something to something. And that from which generation takes place is matter, and that in which generation terminates is form. So the terminus from which is, is uh, matter, the terminus to which is form. Therefore, if matter and form were generated, there would be a matter of matter in a form of form, and so on forever. Hence, properly speaking, there's only generation of the composite. This is relatively straightforward. And he goes on to talk about how prime matter is numerically one. So again, notice that prime matter is said to be numerically one in all things. 
but to be numerically one can be said in two ways, such as that which is determined numerically one form, like Socrates. So I am numerically one form uh, in myself, where uh, me and all of you listening, we are specifically one form. So uh, as determined by form, that is the one way which we can speak of numerically one or specifically one or generically one. Prime matter is not said to be numerically one in this way, since it does not have itself a form. Also, something is said to be numerically one because it is without the dispositions, which will cause it to differ numerically. So um, the numerical oneness of prime matter is through some sort of lack. It lacks form, and therefore it is numerically uh, one because it is not disposed to some sort of form. Prime matter said to be numerically one in this way because it is understood without all the dispositions, which will cause it to differ numerically. Notice, likewise, so this is where he talks about prime matter not existing. He says, notice, likewise, that although prime matter does not have in its definition any form or privation, for example, either shape nor shapeless and it is in it the definition of bronze. Nevertheless, matter is never completely without form and privation because it is sometimes under one form and sometimes under another. Moreover, it can never exist by itself. So prime matter, it doesn't exist. But rather, uh, the things uh, which we see is, is something which is from it. It's from it. It does never exist on its own. For since it does not have any form in its definition, it cannot exist in act since existence in act is only from the form. Rather, it exists only in potency. Therefore, whatever exists in act cannot be called prime matter. So I'm moving on to chapter three, where we discuss um, the four causes. I'm only going to go up to chapter four because chapter five and six is a bit ranty uh, for St. Thomas. And I don't know, and I think it's more... Um, confusing for beginners than anything. But if you want to ask me questions about it some other time, uh, you can go for it. From this, it is plain, therefore, that there are three principles of nature, matter, form, and privation. So uh, this is something that we've known since the end of chapter one. So how do we get them from three principles to four causes? But these are not sufficient for generation. What is in potency cannot reduce itself to act. This is a fundamental proposition in Thomistic philosophy. What is in potency cannot reduce itself to act. There needs to be a superior act which actualizes. For example, the bronze, which is in potency to being a statue, cannot cause itself to be a statue. Because you can't give what you don't have. And if you have it, you already are it, and therefore can't become it that uh, makes sense rather it needs an agent so that the form of the statue can pass from potency to act neither can the form draw itself from potency to act i mean the form of the thing generated which we say is the term of generation because the form oh, i'm going to sneeze give me a second never mind i'm good okay I mean the form of the thing generated, which we say is the term of generation, because the form exists only in that which has been made to be. However, what is made is in the state of becoming, as long as the thing is coming to be. Therefore, it is necessary that besides the matter and form, 
there be some principle which acts. This is called the efficient moving or agent cause, or that from which the principle of motion is. So boom, we need something outside shooting in some actuality because it's not going to be able to reduce itself to act. So we need some sort of efficient cause. So are we up to four now? Actually, we're not up to four. Because look, he says, therefore it is necessary besides the matter and form that there be some principle which acts. Why does he say besides the matter and form, not besides the matter privation and form? Well, as we already saw, matter and privation are identical in reality. Matter and privation are identical in reality. The only different ratio. So they don't form separate causes. So now we only have three causes. So we lost one and we gained one. So what's going to be that fourth cause? Well, the second paragraph he's going to, well, the second and the third paragraph that is, he's going to tell us. And the fourth paragraph, he's going to provide a little bit of summary. Fifth and sixth, he kind of goes off the edge a little bit. So um, also, because as Aristotle says in the second book of the metaphysics, everything which acts, acts only by intending something. There must be some fourth thing, namely that which is intended by the agent. This is called the end. So the agent or the efficient cause doesn't act arbitrarily. No. Rather, the agent or the efficient cause acts for a reason. It acts for an end. And in acting for this end, it has a fourth thing, that is, the final cause. Again, we should notice that although every agent, both natural and voluntary, intends an end, so it does not follow that every agent knows the end or deliberates about the end. Because all that's, uh, all that's needed is that there be some sort of uh, grand plan of an end. And we know that through, uh, give me a second. Okay, continuing. And we know that uh, from the action of God, that there is some sort of providence which leads towards a final end. And also uh, God infuses in all of these natural agents, proximate ends, the uh, the duck, uh eats in order that it may live. That's a certain proximate end. It's not voluntary because the duck is uh, purely sensitive. It doesn't have a rational soul. It's not voluntary, but it's natural. God has induced and infused natural ends in all things. You can see, actually, uh, up to this point, through the ideas of efficient causality, through the ideas of act and potency, through this idea right here of the intention of ends, we can actually see some of the arguments for the existence of God coming through and some of the basis for that. This is going to be able to more solidly place you on a foundation for this, but uh, that's besides the fact. So every agent, both natural and voluntary, intends an end. So this is going to allow us to have the final cause. To know the end is necessary in those whose actions are not determined, but whose may act for opposed end, namely voluntary agents. <coughs> Therefore, it is necessary that these know the end by which they determine their actions. But in natural agents, the actions are determined. Hence, it is not necessarily to choose those things which are for the end. And then uh, Avicenna, 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 I've never, I never pronounced his name right. He's going to give an example. A harpist does not have to deliberate about the notes in any particular chord, since they are already determined for him. Otherwise, there would be a delay between the notes, which would cause discord. 
However, it seems more reasonable to attribute deliberation to a voluntary agent than to a natural agent. And thus it is clear by reasoning from the greater thing to the less that a natural agent can intend the end without deliberation. Therefore, it is possible for the natural agent to intend the end without deliberation and to intend this is nothing else than have a natural inclination to something. So uh, we have agents with natural inclinations to certain ends. Therefore, we have final causes. And uh, just to humor you, I'm going to read through, wait, I'm going to read through, uh, actually, no, this is, this is the fourth paragraph. So this is still, this is like his conclusion before he kind of goes into a bit of a tangent. From the above, it is plain that there are four causes, material, efficient, formal, and final. Remember, uh, there's two intrinsic, that is material and formal. Material contains both matter and privation and form form. Efficient is the agent exterior, and then final is the intention of the agent. So those two are uh, so-called exterior agents. Well, although principle and cause, so uh, why do we call them cause versus principle? So although principle and cause are used convertibly, as is said in the fifth book of the metaphysics, still in the physics, Aristotle gives four causes and three principles because he takes as cause both what is extrinsic and what is intrinsic. Matter and form are said to be intrinsic to the thing because they are parts constituting the thing. The efficient and the final cause are said to be extrinsic because they are outside the thing. But he takes as principles only the intrinsic causes. Privation, however, is not listed among the causes because it is an accidental principle, as was said. When we say that there are four causes, we mean essential causes to which all the accidental causes are reduced because everything which is accidental is reduced to that which is essential. That's why we have four causes, three principles. And then uh, he goes on a bit of a tangent uh, to explain this in a bit more detail. But I will, I will humor you uh, by reading and giving a little bit of explanation. And although Aristotle calls intrinsic causes principles in the first book of the physics... Still, principle is applied properly to extrinsic causes, so we can still use it for extrinsic causes. As is said in the 11th book of the Metaphysics, element, so now we have a third thing, we have cause, we have principle, we have element. Element is used for those causes which are parts of the thing, namely for the intrinsic causes. So if you want to just talk about, if you want to use a term that excludes, you could talk about element. Cause is applied to both. Nevertheless, one is sometimes used for the other. Every cause can be said to be a principle and every principle a cause. Cause and principle interchangeable. However, cause seems to add something to principle as commonly used. Because that which is primary, whether the existence of the posterior follows from it or not, can be called a principle. For example, the smith is called the principle of the knife because the existence of the knife comes from his operation. But when something is moved from whiteness to blackness, whiteness is said to be the principle of that motion. And universally, everything from which motion begins is called a principle. However, whiteness is not that from which the existence of blackness follows. But cause is said primarily only of that, that from which the existence of the posterior follows. Hence, we say that a cause is that from which, uh, from whose existence another follows. Therefore, that primarily from which motion begins cannot really be called a cause, even though it may be called a principle. Because of this, privation is placed among the principles and not among the causes. Because privation is that from which generation begins. And it can also be called an accidental cause, inasmuch as it is coincident with matter. 
as was said above. So uh, this actually plays a little bit into um, the the important discussion between the East and the West when it comes to naming the father as cause versus naming the father as principle, because um, cause, uh, well, principle is wider than cause really just has to do with something that comes from another where cause uh, specifically has to do with existence. It has to do with being where um, since, as we mentioned before, privation uh, is only uh, directed towards becoming and not being. Privation uh, is not a cause. Uh, it's merely a principle. So I hope that uh, makes a little bit of sense. This, again, is not stuff that you really uh, need to know. We're just doing it for fun. Element, on the other hand, is applied properly only to the causes of which the thing is composed, which are properly the materials. So element... Let's do it with materials. Moreover, it is not said of just any material cause, but of that one of which a thing is primarily composed. So this has to do with primary composition. For example, we do not say that the members of the body are the elements of man, because the members also are composed of other things. Rather, we say that earth and water are the elements, because they are not composed of other bodies, but natural bodies are primarily composed of them. So uh, we can talk about the uh, the elements, um, which when it comes to contemporary chemistry, uh, this is not as uh, useful. But when it comes to understanding the language of St. Thomas, this is kind of useful because elements has to do with the sort of primary stuff from which a thing is composed. The explanation of the first part of the definition, that of which a thing is primarily composed, is plain from the preceding. The second part, which is in that thing, differentiates it from matter, which is entirely corrupted by generation. So, um, and he's going to give an example, actually. (coughs) For example, bread is the matter of blood. The food we eat is the matter of our flesh. But blood is generated only by the corruption of bread. So bread is not an element of man. Something like, uh, I don't know, calcium or, uh, I don't know, the... I look, I'm not a nutritionist guy. So uh, all of the nutrients in a thing, which uh, corrupting the thing are left over and you're used to build up the person's body. Those are elements. But bread is technically not an element, uh, but we can call it uh, a principle if you want. Thus, bread does not remain in blood and therefore bread cannot be called an element of blood. But the elements must remain in some way since they are not entirely corrupted. As I said of the book One Generation, the third part, and that which is not divided by a form, differentiates an element from those things which have parts diverse in form, that is, in species, as the hand whose parts are flesh and bone, which differ uh, according to species. So it's not a, uh, elements are not composed of different parts. An element is not divided into parts diverse according to species. Rather, it is like water, whose every part is water. Oh, oh sorry. Um, it can, there can be quantity. Um, it's, it's not divided according to form is what I meant. There can be quantity. For an element to exist, it need not be undivided by quantity. Oh, there you go. Rather, it is sufficient that it be undivided by form. Even if it is in no way uh, divided, it is called an element, just as letters are the elements of words. This, uh, it is plain from that which is called, said, uh, said that principle in some way applies more than does cause and cause uh, 
to more than does element. So widest principle, then cause, then element. This is the what the commentator says in the fifth book of the metaphysics. Okay, so uh, that's all. Next week, uh, chapters four, five, and six, and we'll get this done. So uh, I don't see any questions, so I will finish. And um, if you do have questions you would like to ask live, I'll try to uh, spend the first 10 to 15 minutes of Thursday night's uh, discussion uh, just going over whatever questions you have on chapters two and three. So thank you all, and as always, God bless.